This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Nathan Heffel. Dark skin. Light skin. Dark skin. Dark skin. Light skin. This is the opening of a short film by 18-year-old Antrice Lacey. Faces of high schoolers flash on the screen. They're all African-American. Dark skin. Light skin. Dark skin. Dark skin. Light skin. Dark skin. Lacey noticed something that bothered her at school outside Colorado Springs. Students classifying each other by their skin tone. A girl acted light-skinned or was told that a certain boy didn't date dark-skinned girls. Now she wants to get people to stop using the terms. The film is called Shade. Welcome, Antrees. Hello. Also joining us is Nakota Stacker, who appeared in the film. Welcome to you. Hi, thank you. Thanks for having me. <laughs> Antrees, how do people use these terms light-skinned and dark-skinned in your school and your community? Uh, They use the terms um, definitely on, like, social media. So they'll Mm -hmm. say, oh, I only date light-skinned guys or I only date light-skinned girls and vice versa for the dark-skinned term or um, dark-skins aren't winning. And it's just negative or positive depending on um, the preference of the boys or the girls. So so what does it then mean to act light-skinned? To act light-skinned definitely um, in my film – They say um, light skins don't text back on time. So if you're talking to someone of a lighter skin complexion, you could text them around like 3 and you won't get a text back until maybe 6.30. (laughs) And so um, you hear that a lot or that they have the prettier hair. And um, Nakota, what else would you say like Um, you've seen? Yeah, definitely. So I think what happens is they take the term and they pair it with um, objectives that they think that fit for the qualities. Uh-huh. Um, so if they were to see a light-skinned individual, they'd be like, oh, she's polite, she's nice, she has her things together, she won't, um, I don't know. I mean, boys tend to uh, take in- into consideration how crazy a woman is. So maybe they're you know, assuming that she's more gentle or more feminine and things of that sort. And when they're uh, referring to dark skin, they start to couple it with negative terms, like she's angry, she's... Um, She's unpleasant. She not doesn't good have enough. manners. Yeah, she's not good enough. So well, it... Go uh, ahead, go I, ahead. Well, I want to play a clip of you from the film, Nakoda. You, you described what light and dark skin have come to mean culturally. Team light skin to this generation is everything good, everything positive, everything nice, everything cute, everything that a girl would want to be. And team dark skin are cockroaches. Team dark skins are girls that start fights. Team dark skins are the baby mamas with the attitude. Team dark skins are these negative things. Every adjective that's negative, dark, cruel, angry, all those belong to team dark skin. And I actually did a search on Instagram for these two terms. And on the hashtag light skin feed, it was much like you describe in the film, women with curly hair, taking selfies that are very PG rated, whereas the hashtag dark skin feed got pretty perverted rather quickly with more nudity. There were actually ads for sex services. Nakota, how do you find these stereotypes and how do they affect you? OK, so um, to comment on... Um the searches that you found, I just think that it's interesting um, that alone that you find that dark women are having to throw themselves out more in a more sexual manner instead of um, you, you know, presenting to me, coming to me as, you know, as a woman, as what I mm-hmm. am. And that's what I don't understand the terms dark skin and light skin. What are they trying to allude to? Because we're all, you know, we're all women in the same race. We're doing the same thing. We're on the same level, um, even though, you know, and the the terms shouldn't. Um, cause stigma they should cause um, you know uniqueness like a sense of self like I am who I am and I am beautiful and you will respect me you know with the the same way unfortunately um, 
with the advancement of social media, with the advancement of technology, and with the quick um, generation to leap to what is pretty and what's not and how to, you know, discriminate and, you know, put things into groups and things like that, that's where it came from. And it's just um, unfortunate that that's um, our standing. And Antrice, a lot of the girls in the film say they're insecure about their skin tone. Do you have those insecurities? Um, No, not anymore. I used to. Uh, Going into my junior year of high school, I uh, broadcasted on Facebook about how I had insecurity with my skin tone and that this isn't something I should be insecure of because, as Nakota said, that is who you are. Um, You can't change your skin tone at the end of the day. And um, matter of fact, a couple of those girls that are in my film were girls that reached out to me on Facebook to tell me my story helped them to see that they weren't alone with this insecurity. So I no longer have an insecurity of this. And with uh, the help of YDA, this program came about around the time I um, broadcasted that insecurity. So I was able to just see... um, a growth within myself of uh, confidence and not letting people's snarky comments get to me when they're like, oh, well, you're dark. You're darker than your friend or this and that. And um, overall, I just don't let those comments get to me anymore. And I Mm -hmm. try to educate people on the terms and how they do cause insecurities because some of these insecurities definitely with the girls in my film they started when they were younger I know mine started when I was younger and with the advancement of social media that's when it progressed until it became something where I was almost ashamed of in a sense and and in the mm-hmm. film some of the girls say as as early as elementary school this was something mm-hmm. they were seeing Yeah, definitely. Um, I also think it might have to do with the fact that a lot of those girls didn't go to diverse schools Mm -hmm. and they were always subjected to being like the only African-American. So they weren't aware of like the different shades, but with only within like their family. And um, it's different when you have like people from outs from the outside world pointing out your skin tone. Mm. But it's... um, it's different when your family, like, points it out. And I think definitely with me, that's where my insecurity it's different, started. Sorry, and she's oh, no, But it's different when you're not being able to um, enjoy childhood. Yes. I mean, it makes it, it you know, it starts very, very early because your parents, you know, it's generational. It's systematic. It's, you know, it's... Um, has been intertwined into our history. Mm-hmm. And, you know, when the generations pass and that stigma is still very live, you're not able to enjoy, you're not able to look at yourself and, um, you know, uh, let's see, you know, develop the confidence that you need to develop. You're not being able to be a child. You're not being able to live freely. You're, you know, you're here and you have anxiety about how you look, what colors you wear. Um, you're um, given social anxiety. Of, I don't want to go into that place if there's, you know, light-skinned people there. What are they going to think of me? There's judgment. People don't understand how, um, you know, they see the surface of it. But if you ask an individual... Um, they will let you know that there's anxiety, there's depression, and there's, I mean, in, in extreme cases, there's self-harm. I mean, I've seen, you know, instances myself, you know, in my community and where I grew up. It's um, it's an issue that's just been so uh, marinated that it's hard to lift from. And you mentioned YDA. That's the, the Youth Documentary Academy in Colorado Springs yes. that helped you make this film. Uh, two questions. Uh, do, do students who aren't black use these terms uh, in, 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 in your schools? I definitely have seen students who aren't African-American use these terms. Um, For instance, it's when they're pointing out a girl and putting, uh, comparing the two. They'll say, oh, well, um, she's mixed, so she's light-skinned, but she's a pretty light-skinned, whereas that girl, she's dark-skinned, and 
she's cute for her dark skin. And I've definitely seen that occur um, with people that weren't African-American using those terms. And Nakota, so I think if you're aware of those terms, they do use them. And, and on the flip side, do uh, girls use these words to talk about boys? And do boys have their own insecurities around being called light or, or dark skin? Yes. Oh, yeah, of yeah. course. I mean, <laughs> this problem, I mean, I'm not going to say, I'm not going to push the blame on men and I'm not going to push uh-huh. the blame on young boys. However, I am going to enlighten that, that... um because of what you are sexually desiring of me and from me and what, you know, whatever fantasy or whatever you're having um, to put these objective names on me is the reason as to why this has become so um, like such a, a such a mass issue. It's because of what you are trying to achieve, what you're trying to get. You know, if um, that's why individuals are craving um you know, light skinned individuals, because you at the end of the day, you want to have a child that is going to reflect the same things that you would want to see in your wife, the same things that you want your family to be composed of. You're being ashamed of what, you know, what God has already given you. And it's sad. It's really sad because you're not um, you're not giving yourself room to grow. You're actually stunting your growth if stunting you're not. Your yeah, mm-hmm. you're, you're stunting your growth and our community's growth. Yes. And, and, and definitely like with boys, uh, they do have an insecurity about that. I know a couple of my guy friends have um, definitely addressed the issue and said they do, they do have mild insecurities about mm-hmm. that. And that's definitely a future it's film aspect for me. So at the end of the film, uh, mm-hmm. the girls in your film talk about all the ways they identify themselves besides their skin tone, shy, artist, friend, uh, things like that. How do you both identify yourself now that you've you've really come to terms with, with the, what this means? I definitely identify, I, sorry, identify <laughs> myself as an African-American woman. I'm a filmmaker. I'm a visionary. I'm anything I put my mind to. Nicole. Yeah, as well. I think as though... I am outgoing. I am spontaneous. I am, you know, hardworking. I'm, um, I have, you know, dignity and self pride. And those are things that, again, like I said before, were lacking in childhood. And when you see other children that don't, um, that don't carry, you know, the melanin, that don't carry the dark skin or the light skin term, they don't have problems, um, describing themselves. They don't have problems, you know, saying that they're unique. They don't have problems saying that they're outgoing, but I have to develop this over time. Mm -hmm. That's an issue. (laughs) Well, thanks so much to the both of you. Thank you. Thank you so much. Andres Lacey and Nakota Stacker from the Colorado Springs area. Find a link to Lacey's short film called Shade at CPRnews.org. The film was made with an organization called the Youth Documentary Academy, and we'll have more stories from its young filmmakers in the coming weeks. Up next, where's the line between art photography and being a peeping Tom? This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. You're back with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Nathan Heffel. Residents of a New York high-rise didn't know they would become works of art. They were neighbors of photographer Arnie Svensson. At the time he took their pictures, he didn't get their permission. Some sued him and lost. Now these images are on display at the Museum of Contemporary Art, Denver. Fine arts critic Ray Rinaldi wrote about the show for the Denver Post. He says they're beautiful but are a violation of privacy. MCA curator Nora Abrams sees it differently. She shared some of the backstory with Ryan Warner earlier this month. Arnie actually inherited a telephoto lens from a birder friend that had passed away, and that was in about 2011. And he started to just kind of play around with it. He's not actually formally trained as a photographer, so he had never Mm -hmm. worked with that kind of a camera before. And um, just kind of 
was really fascinated by what he could capture, which was primarily the light and uh, kind of water and dirt on these windows of a building across the street from his studio in Tribeca in New York City. So he was kind of exploring what the camera could do, really. And the building across the street was a kind of glass and steel structure that had these very pronounced window frames. And they created this naturally geometric kind of frame for the windows. Uh, And then slowly, kind of as he began taking more of these photos, he would see a hand or he would see a a body walk by or move by and it would affect the, the drapery or something. And so he became really excited by these kind of everyday moments that he was capturing. He It's a residential building. Sure, yeah. It's a condo building. Um, and it was, I think it's really important to foreground that he really was fascinated by subtle, uh, not salacious or sexy or even dramatic moments. It's these very quiet moments of people going about their everyday lives that he was really, I would say, intrigued by. Yeah. yeah. You, you've or, had a lot of conversations, let me say, with him. And in fact, you yes. led a, a talk with him when he was in Denver. Go ahead. What were you going to say, well, right? I mean, intrigued or obsessed. And, and what did his obsession lead to? And that's where I have problems with this I, I, exhibit. Mm-hmm. Like for a year and a half, he put a telephoto lens through his neighbor's windows and took photos of them doing very intimate things, like grooming themselves, like arguing with their spouses, like sleeping, like uh, he took pictures of their children, of them disciplining their children. He took pictures of pre-adolescent girls with their shirts off. Now, I'm not suggesting... He actually, any... that, I, I just want to interrupt for, for one second and just state that Arnie's um, intention in capturing all of these was to really honor the kind of intimate and beautiful and poignant moments that he observed. And I think to paint a picture of him as this kind of peeping Tom is an inaccurate assessment of what the project was about. Um, Ryan, in fact, you introduced this by saying this was a debate between art and voyeurism and or it's in become fact, that. It's become that. Well, and I think there's actually a very long tradition of voyeuristic photography that dates back to the 19th century and the invention of the moving or the mobile camera. So I don't think that um, what Arnie was doing represents a kind of um, salacious or or exploitative project. You mentioned, Ray, that uh, there are young people captured in some of these images. And I actually think it was the parents of a four-year-old in one of the photographs, or perhaps several of them, that were the first to file a lawsuit. Yeah, and I don't think that that Arnie Svensson was doing anything sort of perverted or had bad intentions, but this is not a victimless crime. And and yet you can't see their faces. You can see their faces. Actually, that's... You cannot identify any I I challenge anyone to go to the MCA and see if they can't identify the faces of at least a few people in that exhibit, including the young girl in question. It is very easy to identify her. Look, this isn't a victimless crime. Like, everyone in Lower Manhattan knows where that building is. Everyone knows who lives there. Everyone knows sort of the clothes they wear and the jewelry they they have and the floor they live on. You can put two and two together. Their privacy was violated. That there is some contextual understanding to who these people are. If you're from that area or you know the neighborhood, what would you say to that, Nora? I, I would say that the individuals who were captured 
are more archetypes or characters rather than Mr. Jones living on floor three. And I think that that's part of the allure and strength of the series as a whole is that they are not, I'm not looking at a portrait of you, Ryan. I'm looking at a man who is sleeping on a couch. And therefore, I can imagine so many different stories around why he's doing or what he might be dreaming about or why he's tired and needs a nap in the middle of the day. I want you to put yourself on that sure. couch and imagine that you are the one sleeping. And yes. his photograph is now up at the Museum of Contemporary Art Denver sure. and other museums across the country because others have, have uh, jumped on this. What would you what would you sure, think? Sure, I think that they are beautiful moments that you oh, know the, the you wouldn't photo- be a bit creeped out. I wouldn't. I wouldn't. And you know, listen, I'm a native New Yorker. I grew up born and raised in an apartment building where you could always see in and you could always see out. And frankly, I was actually in New York last week and I walked by the building. Um I kind of ended up there by accident. Um and I looked up and I saw the building and I saw people through their blinds, through their drapes, just kind of going about their everyday lives. And I saw it in many buildings in in Manhattan. I see it in Denver as well. I think, you know, Ray said something about it's not a victimless crime. You know, I think you also have to, the individuals who had their drapes open, who had their their blinds pulled, it is totally visible from the street. I've been there. I looked up. I saw everything. Um, and I think that there has to be some recognition that you live in an open space and you live in a world where people can often see you even if you aren't looking out and seeing them. And even if you don't want that to happen, it's certainly our reality. You both have now used the term crime, but I want to point out that no crime has been committed here, according to the court that adjudicated this and said that this was about protecting the First Amendment, allowing these photographs. Um, sure. And, to, I, and yeah. the court case, um, Arnie was sued by a family. Um, the statute, the New York State statute un- under which he was sued um, was regarding the use of an image for trade purposes. And the court um, sided with Arnie. And when it was appealed to the New York State Supreme Court, the earlier decision was upheld. Um, I should say that the family that had sued him, it was a, a photo of their, their little girl um, kind of being tossed in the air. And now they are trying to pass through or push through legislation in the New York State legislature that would require that any image that is published, that is shared or made public, even if it's of a street scene or a restaurant scene or what have you, um, if there are other people in that photograph, that everyone consent to the photograph, which would put immense, enormous restrictions on the production of any image whether it's for fine art or it's something that you take with your cell phone. And let me say that that, uh, Svensson's reaction to the original ruling was that this is a great victory for the rights of all artists. Ray, what do you think of that? Because you you also come at this as a a journalist. And, you know, when you take a photo of someone in, in the public sphere, you don't have to necessarily have their permission. So... Let me see if I can knock you off a high horse a little bit here. Haven't you engaged in this as a, as a newspaper reporter? Um, yes, definitely. I'm a guilty party here. <laughs> um, but but Arnie Svensson's breach isn't legal, right? It's civil. And this idea that like artists don't have to obey or go along with sort of the basic rules of civility sounds like something made up by artists. Mm. Or, or maybe they're dealers. So you're saying that if it's not violating the letter of the law, it's violating something kind of deep within us. Absolutely. And and Nora talks about this as sort of this objective way. But if you're one of those people who are in the building, you are 
a victim of this. You, you know, you're traumatized. And in fact, here's the deal. Like we see like 12 photos by Arnie Svensson or 20 at the MCA. We know he took thousands, right? We know the guy took thousands of photos. So, you know, what's on his hard drive? That's kind of creepy to me. And actually in interviews, that is what the people who live in that building say. Like, great. Okay. So maybe I'm protected here, but, but what does he have of me? So you know, close your blinds. You live in New York City. What do you say? I say that there is a reasonable expectation of privacy and that if we are all going to get along, we have to respect that. Now, should we not respect it in the name of art? Well, you know, that doesn't seem to me to be a, like a, a realistic point of view. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and we're talking about this exhibition at the Museum of Contemporary Art Denver called The Neighbors. And it's a series of photographs of uh, individuals in their home in New York City uh, taken by a photographer across the street without their permission. And uh, this is uh, supposed to raise all kinds of conversations about what art is. But what would you say, Nora, to people who think you're just complicit in people's violation of privacy here? I think that the the series of photographs to me are – elegantly composed, enigmatic, arresting images. And I am very proud to display them in our museum. Does he make money from these? Not in our museum. I mean, we're no. a nonprofit. They're, we don't they're sell for anything. Sale. And they're for sale for, you know, <clears throat> a lot of his, money. Through his dealer, they are mm. certainly for sale. That and, and let's just say that having a museum show in Denver uh, raises his credibility level and, and undoubtedly raises the price level that he can charge for these phones. Right. And I, I will even say, because I can see the emails coming into my inbox now, you know, Ryan Warner and Colorado Matters are complicit even in, in discussing <laughs> the issue. But I, I don't think that there is anything I don't think it's bad or good to be complicit. This is issues of privacy, issues of who has access to information about us are of the most pressing concerns that we face today living in the 21st century where we have Google and Amazon who know more about my children than than some of my close friends because they know what my preferences are. To have an exhibition yeah, do I that, hear, Do I hear you saying uh-huh. that if you're worried about – uh, the back of you being caught in a photograph. You're not worrying about the right things in terms of the violation I'm of your not, privacy? I'm not saying that one thing is right or wrong. I'm just saying that we live in a world where there is so much information about us that is available to so many more people than we are aware of. And a photograph of a quiet moment of peace is so benign in comparison to what, you know, again, what something like Apple or Amazon might know about me and use it kind of to manipulate me, to market towards me. But, but we all know this. And I don't think we need Arnie Svensson in invading people's privacy to tell us this. I mean, Edward Snowden told us this. We don't need Arnie Svensson. And this idea that like, Art should do that. Uh, to me, it reeks of some sort of like cultural fundamentalism, what? where we're, no, just like religious fundamentalism, like where you know because what I do as an artist is so pressing and so important that I get to disobey the rules of of civil society. Mm. You know, in the name of art, there are a lot of other ways to do that. There are a lot of other ways to construct photographs that do that. But and they don't I, invade people's privacy to make their point. I, I think, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to wrangle this conversation back. <laughs> there are two points that I'm really curious to ask about. I mean, one is, Ray, when you ran your piece about this, didn't you run the photographs in the post? Yeah, we ran. Uh, I mean, that's uh, some an interesting of the photographs. Decision. If I'd had more, I would have run more. Look, they're out there. This, this deed has been done. Now these things move from 
being a privacy issue into something more important. You know, I, I encourage people to go to the MCA. I don't want them to not go see that show. I mean, it's a, a credible art show by a great curator. I would just yeah, briefly like to respond go to ahead, the um, – uh, Ray, I, this was something that in your article you you really pressed, especially at the end where you said, you know, shouldn't art be polite? And I think that um, many people shared your response regarding um, whether or not permission had been secured and, and what the kind of repercussions of that are. But I think in my in my soul, I am so grateful for art that is not polite, for art that is questioning, that is experimental, that is pushing boundaries, that is making us aware of where boundaries lie. I think the thing about this exhibition is that where you draw the line is so different from where Ryan draws the line and where I draw the line, and that it can generate a conversation that explores all of our kind of beliefs and um, ideas around that is so gratifying. I'll say that uh, where I draw the line is irrelevant in this conversation. <laughs> I, I hope that's clear. Uh, just briefly, uh, Ray, you wrote this piece and you got some rather thoughtful f- feedback. I, I wonder if your own perception of this has evolved a bit. It has evolved. And I've gone back to the exhibit uh, several times. And the photos are good. You wrote I, some of this feedback. Is that right? Um, yeah. I have, yeah like, uh, read me something that you heard from a, a reader. Well, I mean, Mark Sink is a photographer in town. He's really well known. And he was a defender of, of Arnie Svensson and what he did. And he is said, worried about an artist making unidentifiable abstract images of people? Please. It's the least one should worry, be worried about concerning invasion of privacy. Mm, similar to what yeah. we just heard but from Nora. had other artists like uh, Laura Mincello from uh, Boulder simply saying, I know I will not go see them. Denver Post fine arts critic Ray Rinaldi and curator Nora Abrams. They spoke with Ryan Warner earlier this month. The exhibition is called The Neighbors. It runs through Sunday at Denver's Museum of Contemporary Art. Coming up, we take a trip on Trail Ridge Road and find some hidden spots along the way. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Nathan Heffel. Trail Ridge Road in Rocky Mountain National Park peaks at over 12,000 feet and reopened for the summer season last weekend. The road has fascinated Lakewood author Amy Law since she was a kid. She even got a master's degree to better understand the unique ecosystems along the route. I grabbed a copy of her new book, A Natural History of Trail Ridge Road, in September and took a tour with her of the 48-mile highway to the sky. This is uh, the junction of U.S. 36 and U.S. 34, which is the beginning of Trail Ridge Road. And here we are. We're on it. We're on it. Starting up. Only a mile into the park, we encounter our first animals. Oh, turkeys! Turkeys! I've never seen turkeys in Rocky Mountain National Park before. That's outstanding. We pull off to the side of the road and hop out of the van. Soon, other cars pull over as well. They block the roadway as people jockey to get a better look at the six birds slowly moving through the pines. Uh, turkeys, right up there. Turkeys. I've never seen turkeys in Rocky Mountain National Park before. Cool. Yeah. Have you kind of become an unofficial guide of this park? <laughs> Do people stop? Because you seem to yes. know exactly what you're doing. Uh, yeah, I, I get stopped a lot. Uh, um, I, I just have that look about me, I guess. I do talk to people a lot because I really enjoy sharing what I know. I think that Jacques Cousteau said that people protect what they love. And I want people to love Rocky Mountain National Park and the mountains as much as I do. Talk a little bit about how you chose to write this book. I looked at all the different routes in Colorado and I decided the Trail Ridge Road, it's, it's the queen. It's the queen of the roads in Colorado. 
and so so I thought this would be a good choice. Uh, the editors agreed, and we were off. Law steers her van into an unmarked pull-off on the left-hand side of Truridge Road. Stout pine trees called Krumholtz, the German word for crooked wood, hide it from full view. This is one of Law's favorite places along Trail Ridge, so secluded that most people don't know it's here, a place she's purposely kept out of her book but allowed us to see. Okay, so we're hopefully going to go up into the Krumholtz and then beyond it to see one of the hidden features of the park, which is an ancient Indian game drive. This is not a game jump where you would stampede thousands of buffalo or hundreds of buffalo off the edge of a cliff. This is a series of rock walls that funnel the animals together and then into an area where the hunters can kill them. And we'll go take a look at that. Hopping over a small rock wall, we begin our climb into the alpine tundra above treeline, about 11,000 feet. Now, the reason we're not doing so much talking is because you can get a bit windy quite easily up here. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) yeah, saving my breath. So we're on this alpine tundra uh, rock-strewn area. We have a beautiful vista in Rocky Mountain National Park. Where are we? All right, we are on Tombstone Ridge, and we're looking, uh, we're in a little bit of a, a swale, a little bit of a depression. Uh, I found this uh, when I took a, a little one-day class uh, with an archaeologist who had studied up here, and he'd actually excavated these sites and learned quite a bit about them. There are a lot of these game drives throughout Rocky Mountain National Park and the entire front range of the Rocky Mountains. And they were used for about 5,000 years by the early people to hunt big game. The prevailing winds blew in the direction of the hunters. And the old people and the kids and the women would slowly walk behind whatever deer and elk they could find and just gradually push them up the slope. The, The hunters would then be able to stand up and uh, shoot them with bows and arrows. And we're right at that point. We're right here at We were that right point. there. We were right there. When I was up here last year, I was uh, standing around taking some pictures, and I saw an elk come right through where these rock walls would have been. And so the, the people knew exactly where the animals were going to go. They knew exactly what the animals were going to do. And they used that to their advantage to get a lot of meat for the winter. There isn't a set trail here. Um, no. We're kind of off the beaten path. Is that something you'd recommend that, that people do? It seems to me this is a beautiful place, but it's because there's no one here. That's very, very true. Not only is it a beautiful place, it's a very fragile place. The plants up here take hundreds of years to get established and grow. And you can destroy them by just stepping on them. Uh, we've been very careful about where we've put our feet to get over here. No, I would really not recommend people coming up here, but I always find this place so stirring and so evocative of how people used to live that I thought that I'd share it with your listeners. Uh, So maybe someone who does know a little bit about the Alpine Thunder would be fine coming up here, but maybe not for the general tourist who's who's never been to a place like this. I'd I'd say that's very true. (laughs) The park's Alpine Visitor Center sits near the peak of Trowridge Road at over 11,700 feet. When we drive up in the late afternoon, the parking lot is still crammed with cars, buses, and people. Law and I walk behind the visitor center where a group of tourists snap photos and selfies. But Law focuses her camera on something different, another hidden gem of the park. You're really interested in this piece of, of, of snow over here. Right. And not a lot of people are taking a look at it. Why are you so interested in that piece of snow right there? Because 
you can see forests all across the northern tier of the states, all throughout the Rocky Mountains. You can see forests. There are very few places where you can see snow in September, and Trail Ridge Road is one of them. I find that really, really cool and really unique. For me, it's very special. But this snow goes away and comes back every year, right? Uh, no, th- these snow fields are probably about 800 years old. 800 years old. Yeah. They started in what was called the Little Ice Age that started about 1200 when the Earth went through a natural cooling cycle and uh, the snow built up again. All of the glaciers that you see, all of the snow fields that you see in Rocky Mountain National Park are left over from the Little Ice Age, not the major ice ages that, that actually carved most of what we see. We're headed back down toward the east entrance of Rocky Mountain National Park now as the sun starts to set. We come upon a small mule deer hidden in the brush on the edge of the highway. And he's just feet from the road. Yeah, yeah. Oh, he looks like he's been rolling in something. He's all covered in muck. (laughs) He's been having a good time. And have you found that the animals are pretty adept with the the humans and the cars and the the traffic? Yeah, yeah. The the animals have really adapted uh, very well to the huge amounts of traffic that we see coming through Rocky Mountain National Park. If you get out and start approaching them, they will move away. But as long as you respect their comfort zone, they'll stay there and be quite comfortable with you. They know that you're not going to hurt them. I mean, but do you find that's kind of a concern maybe for someone like yourself who who writes these books, uh, welcoming people to the park, that maybe there could be too many people coming here and that could have an adverse effect on these animals? Um, my... I hate to say, you know, we've got too many people in the parks um, because because they are so spectacular and I want everybody to enjoy them. The, what I would say is that people do need to be aware that, that there's wear and tear on the parks as, as well as um, magnificent scenery and, and lots of animals and whatnot. And people need to be very respectful of their time in the parks and take the advice of the the signs that's when they say, you know, go no farther, go no farther. The sun has nearly set as Law takes me to a meadow flanked by Douglas fir near the east entrance. We get out and watch an elk bull as he corrals his harem. And there's about a dozen female elk in there, young. And they're about a thousand yards away from us right now, and the bull is over there herding the other cows and we seem to have attracted the rest of the people in the park about two dozen cars now are pulling up next to this herd seems like a perfect example of of humans and nature right right next to each other here right right one of the cows has crossed the road and is now separated from the herd and the bull keeps wanting to go and get her. And yet he's a little wary of crossing in front of so many humans. Maybe 15 to 20 yeah, people yeah. between him and the cow. Exactly. And he keeps watching her. He wants to go get her, but he doesn't want to put the people between him and the rest of his herd. So this really is what it is all about for you, isn't it? Just yeah. being out here and... Yeah. Yeah, it is. Just... Being here in the dusk and watching the animals and and listening to the elk bugle. That's it. That's that's about as good as it gets for me. Well, thank you so much for taking me on a tour of Trail Ridge. I I really appreciate it. It was truly my pleasure. Any excuse to go up on Trail Ridge Road is a good day for me. 
Lakewood author Amy Law and I visited Rocky Mountain National Park in September. Her book is called A Natural History of Trail Ridge Road. The road reopened for the summer season last weekend. Just ahead, the triplet chefs of Boulder. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. You're back with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Nathan Haffel. Triplet chefs Jessica, Jill, and Jennifer Emick grew up in a large Italian family that loved to cook. And some of their favorite recipes are together in a new book, but with a twist. The recipes are all gluten-free and paleo-friendly. And they're not all Italian, like cauliflower fried rice and grain-free beet brownies. The sisters run the Boulder restaurant Shine. The book's called Eat, Drink, Shine, Inspiration from Our Kitchen. Welcome to the three of you. Thank you. Thank you. Happy to be here. You all say the cookbook is meant to reflect not only the food of your restaurant, but the philosophy as well. Uh, Jennifer, what is that philosophy? Well, our philosophy really is to... um, Do what you enjoy, eat what you enjoy, and it takes more than just food. It's more about lifestyle as well, about moving, about being around people who love you and support you, vice versa, and um, just really, you know, enjoying enjoying your body and and everything that's around you. And at 11, you all started working in your uncle's grocery store. You say that experience made you think about food differently. Jessica, how so? Well... For one, I mean, we were getting down and dirty working in the fish department and laying out all the fish and the meat department and wrapping meat and and all different sorts of stuff. And for me personally, this got me really in touch with food, Uh actually literally feeling it. And then also um, being kind of a witness of people and how they're shopping for their food, what they're buying, if they're buying mostly whole foods or if they're buying mostly packaged foods and There was just something around this awareness of how many different ways it can go when you go shopping for food. And um, I started to put together how um, it really affects um, people and their vibrancy and their lifestyle and their well-being and their happiness, all of it. It just started to plant seeds for that kind of thing. And Jill, why fill the book with only gluten-free and paleo-friendly recipes? Well... First of all, the book is is very, you know, has a lot of vegetarian recipes as well. Okay. But the reason why we went 100% gluten-free is my sister Jennifer um, has a pretty severe gluten intolerance. And our restaurant, Shine Restaurant in downtown Boulder, is a 100% gluten-free restaurant. Um, the thing about gluten is it kind of hangs in the air um, and flour and stuff like that. So it's really hard to do to have something on the menu that says it's gluten-free um, when there could be a lot of cross-contamination from a lot of different things. So we went 100% gluten-free with the restaurant and decided to do the same thing with the book because we see the way people are responding to it. And um, paleo is something that we also... It's it, it's really based in sourcing, which is something that's really important at the restaurant. Yeah. So when you do paleo, it's not just about meat and vegetables, which is what most of the diet is, but it's more about where that food comes from. So it's wild fish, it's grass-finished meats, um, it's you know using local vegetables, and so it's more than what's what it is that you're putting in your body, but like the actual meat or the vegetables, but where right. they come from too. So we talk a lot about sourcing and that kind of thing in the book as well. Now, Jill, Jill you're a little bit close to the mic, so back off a little bit. You're getting a little bit of, of, of loudness there. Uh, Sorry, I, I, I was getting excited. <laughs> Backing it up. <laughs> well, for the three of you, was it difficult uh, coming from an Italian family uh, to be told that eating gluten wasn't a good idea for you, Jessica? 
Well, here's the thing about gluten. For one, um, Jill and I will definitely indulge every now and again and enjoy every minute of it when we are. But the other thing is, um, you know, we really want to get the point across that, like, gluten isn't really the um, villain. It's more Mm. if it's overdone, if it's overused. So we're like, yeah, if you can eat gluten and tolerate it, eat it in in moderation, the great breads and the pastas and all of that stuff. Um, And this is geared towards both people that can have gluten and people that have a hard time with gluten. Um, With our big Italian family, when we go home, sometimes we do sub, you know, the regular pasta for the gluten-free. And we know the brands, we pick out the brands, we know the ones that you really can't tell much of a difference. And then we also are really careful to not, you know, preach or tell anyone what's right for them. So we, you know, we can understand that there is a way to to indulge and then also heal and, um, you know, get back to our roots with our Italian um ancestry and still enjoy that food. And let's face it, it's, you know, Italian ancestry and food isn't all about gluten. There's so many different meats and seafood and, you know, fruits, veggies, all that kind of stuff, too, that we 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 still love, still cook and and, and all of that as well. Oh, one of your favorite recipes in the book is the paleo pizza that goes beyond even gluten free. How do you make pizza crust without any grains? Well, um, that this is Jennifer, and that was actually one of the recipes I tested quite a bit. And we use cauliflower for it. And it's such a great substitute because it does bind with egg, and, um, and it just makes a really nice pizza crust. We also use it for flatbread as well. And it's light, and it's fluffy. It's, it's on a, the thinner consistency. But um, for me, I just really, really enjoy it. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Nathan Heffel. We're speaking to triplet chefs Jessica, Jill, and Jennifer Emick of Boulder. They run the restaurant Shine. Gluten-free and paleo recipes often require a lot of ingredients and can be pretty labor-intensive. Um, how successful can the average home cook be at these recipes? Do, do you need to know something beyond just basic uh, kitchen etiquette and things like that? So this is Jessica speaking. Yeah. So as far as um, the recipes, you know, we've been working in restaurants for so long and there's different kinds of cookbooks. And we really decided that this wasn't going to be like a chefy chef complicated cookbook. <laughs> this is a family cookbook. And this is written with the understanding that, you know, time is very valuable. And so we wanted to create recipes that can be done quickly um, efficiency, efficiently, easy to read and understand and translate. Um, you know, they can be done with kids. They could be done, you know, when you get home from work that you can make, um, you know, within a half hour for dinner. That was all um, very much in mind when we wrote this book. So it's actually very approachable. The ingredients are approachable and easily available. And the recipes, for the most part, aren't complicated. There's like a few in there that we up the ante a little bit, but, and you can go for that on, you know, when you're feeling it. Um, But for the most part, they're, they're simple, they're straightforward, and they're easy to understand. And Jill, you, you, all the three of you actually mentioned you grew up in a large Italian family, your parents, grandparents, and some of your siblings are also apt in the kitchen. And your book has adaptations of recipes like dad's pot of sauce with meatball. There's also a cheesecake inspired by something your mom makes. What do your parents think of these paleo and gluten-free adaptions, uh, adaptations rather? Do they feel it holds up this family tradition? 
You know, it took them a little while, but um, they are really excited about it. My dad is the cook in the family, actually, <laughs> and he was really excited to see that his pot of sauce got in there. And we did change some of the recipes from his, some of the ingredients from his original recipe, but we did it with him and we did it all together as a family. And he absolutely loved the process. And I have to say, when he saw it in print for the first time, tears came to his eyes and he was he was really really proud and and my dad's not a very expressive person so Mm -hmm. to see that reaction from him was really special for the three of us it passed the dad test then yeah (laughs) we passed the the dad test and and you know my mom is she just eats everything my dad makes so she was she's she's (laughs) she's really excited about it too to to try our recipes through my father now you are uh, I, i mentioned triplets and i understand your parents sometimes dress the three of you alike uh, as kids, and people oh, yeah. often got the three of you confused, yet you all are adamant that you're very different people. Why then follow such similar paths in life? Well, and this is Jill again. Um, I think part of it, you know, we have a brother. He's four years older than us, and he has a disease called metachromatic dystrophy. And, you know, growing up and caretaking with him, Um, The three of us just became fiercely close and the six of us as a family with my brother and my mom and dad. And we've just kind of stuck with that. So we have followed the same path pretty much our whole lives. And we've looked out for each other, you know, still with my brother and, you know, my sisters and I. But we do have very different parts of the restaurant. Um, like, for instance, Jessica is the executive chef and Jennifer handles business operations in front of the house. And I do, you know, all our events and PR and that kind of thing. So it's like we have this beautiful overlay um, while we each have different parts of the restaurant. Same thing with the book. We took different parts of it um, and we, we created a lot together. But then we would let each other fly with the with our individual parts and then came back together and kind of did the overlay together. And it works well. Well, we have total trust in each other. The unconditional love is there, and it really helps raise the vibration of all of it. And being tri- and oh, being continue. triplets, <laughs> and being triplets, we you know we started in the womb together, and um, you know it's just we're the same age. So I think you know we always went to the same school, and then we continued and went to the same college, UNLV, and so we've always just had a comfortability being together. But now um, I feel our we're so close, but our individuality is so strong as well. And, um, you know, it's the partners that you could trust the most and, you know, be the maddest at and the happiest with. And it's it's a really amazing and unique relationship. I mean, you have to say that you can't all be just wonderful partners working together. There has to be oh, some no. stress there. Oh, yeah. Lots of it. <laughs> well, I think, that's part, I think that's part of it. We know how to push each other's buttons, so it forces us to really look at our stuff. We're, you know, literally and figuratively each other's mirrors, you know. And so there's there's a lot of growth spurts and there's definitely pain and there's definitely arguments in the office. And then we feel like we come out better people because of it, though. So does it ever get intense, too intense, mixing family and business together? This is Jessica. And I would say um, absolutely. Like we've had our moments where we're like, okay, this is it, the end of the line. We're going our separate ways. And you know, this it's it's times when you feel like when you get closest to that breakthrough that we almost feel like we're we're breaking down, we're 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 going our separate ways. And then we continue to have these breakthroughs that I think we're actually even becoming more comfortable with being uncomfortable with each other at times, because um, we're seeing how it affects us in a positive way, but it doesn't make it easy. And I also feel like the stronger we get in our individuality, which continues to happen 
um, the more comfortable we are being together. Because I think that sometimes is the most challenging thing when we feel like everyone mixes us up, that sometimes we start to, you know, get convoluted in our thoughts of ourselves or each other. And so, as I, I know, as we're getting older, we get stronger in our um, in our own selves and our own individuality, and then it makes it easier to just well, be together. And we're gonna together have and... we're gonna have to wrap it up there. Thanks to the three of okay. you. Thank, Thank you. you so much. And I just want to say, you can get the book um, at our restaurant or through Amazon or through our website, shineboulder.com. Thank Triplets. you. Jessica, Jill, and Jennifer <laughs> Emick run the Boulder restaurant Shine. Their first cookbook came out earlier this month. It's called Eat, Drink, Shine, Inspiration from Our Kitchen. Find recipes at cprnews.org. And that's our show for this Tuesday. Thanks to my engineer, Kara Schiff, my director, Sam Brash, and producer, Stephanie Wolf. I'm Nathan Heffel. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News.